Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sunigo One Piece podcast. On this episode, I'll be going into episodes 245 through 247, which will cover manga chapters 347 through 352. But yeah, everyone is in trouble as the might of the CP9 really shows itself here, as everyone in their path is seemingly no match for them. Alrighty, the synopsis. With the shocking reveal that the former shipwrights of the Galila Company were actually the government agents of the CP9 tasked with getting the plans of the ancient weapon Pluton, Luffy and the Straw Hats have to save Iceberg, prevent the plans from being taken, and get through Lucci to retrieve Robin. But they find themselves utterly no match for the power of the CP9. Alright, so differences. There actually are very, very few of them in these episodes. In fact, they're just really minor changes. So the first one is the fact that in the manga, they actually show Luffy being completely impaled by Luchi's Shigan once he changes into his hybrid leopard form. And in the anime, it's made less graphic as they show it more in a silhouetted fashion. But in the manga, man, you see his like nail like pierce through Luffy's back. And everything. Uh, the other change that they made is when Zoro gets launched by Luchi out of the Galila Company building, in the anime, it's kind of left up to a little bit more interpretation as to what happened to Zoro, because it never actually shows him landing anywhere. However, in the anime, it actually does show him hitting the water and sinking, which is a little weird and problematic, but. Uh, they kind of cover themselves in a, in a future episode, but it's just strange how it works out. I'll talk a little bit about this in the spoilers, though, and but it's ultimately an inconsequential change. All right, so that does it for the differences. Let's go on to my thoughts. So picking up from the last episode, Polly obviously has sort of an existential crisis after finding out that his co-workers and close friends are in fact assassins and are in the process of killing his mentor. This would throw anyone for a loop and soon everyone else starts to kind of catch on what to, with what's going on. Polly fed up with this. He attacks Lucci, but it's apparent that Lucci is on a whole other level in terms of strength as he easily dodges Polly's attack and performs a new move called Shigang or Finger Pistol. Again, I'm just going to use the Japanese names for these moves because the English names are kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so, And they just sound cooler in Japanese. Anyways... Luchi then goes on to explain all these powers the CP9 have and that have, they have been displaying up till now. And he, ex- he goes on to explain that they've been trained from a very young age and in order to become a CP9 agent, you have to have mastered all these techniques called the Rokushiki, or, which translates to the six styles. Or in the subs, they refer to them as the six powers. And by the end of this episode, we'll have seen all six of them. But I'll quickly go through them. I know I went through a few of them in the last podcast, but I'll go through all six of them now. So you've got Shigang, or Finger Pistol, which basically allows you to use your fingers to pierce through things with great force, like a bullet. Uh, You have Geppo, or Moonwalk, which allows you to double jump or skywalk. Soru, or Shave, which allows you to move at super speed. Tekkai, or Iron Body, which allows them to, you know, harden their bodies to the point where they seemingly become invulnerable. Rankyaku, or Storm Leg, or Tempest Kick, uh, which is, I believe, what the subs call them. It allows uh, the user to kick so hard and fast that it creates a projectile-like slicing wind attack. And then finally, Kamie, or Paper Drawing, or and in the, the subs, they call them Paper Art, which allow them to become super flexible and avoid and dodge attacks like it's nothing. 
I've always personally loved this Rokushiki techniques. They all look and function really well and really coolly. I love seeing each of them. I also think that as you'll see as the arc and the series itself goes on, is how each one of them is used very differently between all the different users of the Rokushiki um, techniques. And some users specialize in certain techniques more than the others. So they tend to like put their own spin on it. And later, you know, as the series goes on, you'll see particular people, not just CP9 agents, that actually specialize in one particular one. While they can use all six, they really hone in on one of them. And it's really cool to see. Anyways, enough with a deep dive into Rokushiki. We'll get back into the story. Luffy moves in to save Polly, but Luchi is freakishly strong as he tanks all of Luffy's attacks like it's nothing and gets countered by a Shigan to the throat, which is looks painful, but Luffy is saved by his devil fruit, so he never, doesn't actually get pierced. We then finally get a long-awaited conversation with Robin and Luffy to figure out why she aligned herself with the world government of all people, since that's one of the things that she's been running away from her entire life, and what she's actually after. One thing to note is what Luffy says to Robin, how he doesn't necessarily want to force her to come back, as that would go against Luffy's sort of philosophy that everyone should be free to do what they want, but he wants to know why, and that if she wants to leave, she should leave the crew properly on her own terms. And I like that distinction, because, yeah, Luffy is not the type of person to just want to hold on to people just against their will. She then gives a vague answer about how she has a wish that she wants fulfilled, and the only way it can be fulfilled is to align with the world government. But at this point, it really seems like Robin is dead set on betraying the Straw Hats and going along with the world government. And Zoro obviously asks Luffy if he's accepted Robin's decision, and he emphatically says, like hell he could. And with Robin completely forsaking the crew and leaving Luffy, he tries to go after her, but Bluno showing off the power of the CP9 and the Rokushiki techniques demonstrates just how powerful they all are as Luffy is left completely unable to land a hit on him with Kamiye. Not to mention Kaku and Khalifa getting into the action with a double Rankaku and Zoro immediately recognizes as this is a very dangerous attack telling Nami and Chopper to duck. And I always found this really cool on Zoro's part because obviously he recognizes a flying slash since he himself uses one with his pound cannons. With Luffy temporarily down, Zoro goes up against Kaku and during their short duel, they have a little conversation as Zoro asks directly to Kaku about the survey of the Marion, whether it's actually true because they were faking it. But again, Kaku confirms to Zoro that the Mary's survey was accurate to everyone's disappointment. Kaku and Zoro duel to somewhat of a stalemate. However, when Zoro breaks Kaku's carpentry saws, he kind of lets his guard down as he yells to Luffy to get Robin. But Zoro doesn't realize that Kaku's entire body is a weapon and gets stabbed three times with Shigang, basically being shot three times in the chest like a, with a gun. With Luffy's completely incapacitated by Luchi in a pretty humiliating fashion, I might add, as Luchi easily grabs Luffy's face and then tosses him aside like it's nothing. And it's been a while since we've seen opponents completely manhandle two of the strongest members of the Straw Hats like this, not since Crocodile, but... As if having the Rokushiki techniques isn't enough, Luchi reveals he's actually a devil fruit user, a zone devil fruit user as well, the Neko Neko no Mi model leopard or the cat cat fruit, Neko being cat in Japanese. Even before Luchi describes how zone types, you know, work, 
and how they're further enhanced by users' physical strength, it immediately dawns on me, at least at the time when I first read this, like, holy shit, if he's already that strong as a normal human, he must be crazy powerful with a carnivorous zone devil fruit. And this is also easily the biggest we've ever seen any zone thus far transform into. He's like 10 feet tall here, maybe even taller. I mean, Dalton was already a freakishly tall person, and he turns into a bison in his hybrid form, and he was still somewhat of a normal size. I have to say, though, the anime character model of Luchi in his hybrid leopard form has some weird proportions. Like, they seem to be a little off, like the arms are a little too long, and the chest is, like, too wide. I can't quite put my finger on it, but something about the form looks really weird, and it looks way more intimidating in the manga because the proportions are drawn more accurately, or at least how Oda wanted him to look, and so he does look... I mean, he looks pretty top-heavy in the manga as well, but there's just something about the way he's drawn in the anime in that episode. He just looks weird. With the building on fire and ready to collapse, Luchi further adds to it by unleashing a massive Nankyoku burying Chopper who risks himself to protect Nami, while Polly tries to save Iceberg. Here is also another moment that made me believe that Polly was going to be the next straw hat, as he was so deeply wounded that they betrayed him when he thought they were his nakama. That strong reaction to being betrayed and how much emphasis he put on, you know, the nakama relationship, again, kind of added to the rationale, to me that at least, that he was the one who's going to be a straw hat. As Luchi moves in to subdue Polly and Iceberg, Luffy jumps in and lands a hit on him right in the face, but it does nothing to them. And then Luffy brutally gets impaled by Luchi's claw, Shigan, in the gut. And this time, since Luchi has, you know, claws, it actually pierces through Luffy's gut. And like I mentioned in the differences section, in the manga, you fully see the attack, like the brutality of seeing his finger just go straight through Luffy's gut. Whereas in the anime, again, it turns into this sort of silhouetted black and white shot where you only see like the shadows of what's happening kind of to reduce the graphic nature of the hit. Luffy is then flung out of the building across the entire city to who knows where. Seeing this, Zoro then moves in against Luchi but gets quickly kicked away, seemingly to the ocean, as he also then drops his Sandai Kitetsu sword. So now Zoro's only got two swords, and we're not sure what's going to happen with his third sword or how he's going to get that back. So just to expand a little bit on one of the other differences item... One thing about how the anime actually shows Zoro falling into the water is very strange to me. In the manga, they don't actually show it as you cut from a panel of Zoro kind of falling through the sky and then it sort of cuts to a bunch of panels of the water, but it never actually has a panel where you see Zoro hitting the water or falling into the water and sinking. And it just kind of leaves this more up to interpretation, but for good reason, as we'll see later on. And yeah, like I said, I'll talk a little bit more about this in detail in the spoilers, but ultimately it's really not, it's it's inconsequential, like it doesn't matter, but it's just a weird thing. A little bit later on, we see this shot of Hattori staring at the burning Galila company, and it is freaky as hell with the flames reflect, reflected in his eyes. And with the CP9 now moving against Frankie, as they now realize he's got the plans, we then finally catch back up to Frankie and Usopp. And in an unexpected turn of events, Frankie and his sisters are moved to tears with Usopp's story about what happened between him and the rest of the Straw Hats, as well as the going merry. It seems that Frankie really doesn't have too much of an ill will towards Usopp, as he's actually being somewhat of a good host to Usopp, 
and the Mary, allowing him to stay and try and repair the ship. Frankie does seem to feel bad about spending the money and taking it from them. And Usopp surprisingly has made his peace mostly, which is really unexpected, uh, you know, from both. And actually really nice to see that now they've had a chance to sort of get to know each other a bit and understand one another, that they're at least both forgiving. And Frankie turns out to be somewhat of a decent guy as we've continuously have been learning with each reveal of an aspect of his character. And I do love how flamboyantly he does announce to Usopp that he spent the 200 million berries and Usopp just casually stating, I'm going to knock you guys over. And I really love the next few scenes between Frankie and Usopp. As Frankie and Usopp make a good pairing though, I mean they're both comedic natures play off of each other really well. And I really like that Frankie has taken a liking to Usopp and is, yeah, again, he's actually a pretty good guy. Frankie shows that he's got a lot of depth to him as well as the fact that he's quite aware of the troubles that Water 7 faces with the continuously rising sea and alludes to the fact that the island was in real trouble before the sea train was built that allowed people to come and go more freely and allowed trade to actually happen more freely as well. Frankie then gets a little serious and asks Usopp what he plans to do once he fixes the Mary. And when Usopp tells him that he plans on returning to the East Blue, Frankie's tone changes to a more grim and serious manner as he gets real with Usopp about how the Mary won't be able to make it and says that the Mary should be dismantled. As heartbreaking as this next episode is, I really love how much care and love goes into this part. You can almost feel how much raw emotion went into writing this portion of the story. And again, we get to see into more of what kind of character Frankie is, as well as Usopp, and that Frankie really isn't the crazy villain that he was originally portrayed to be. But in fact, he's a very emotional, warm, and kind person, albeit a little erratic. I love that Frankie wanted what was best for Usopp, no matter what decision he made especially the part where he was willing to let Usopp go if his true wish was to die with the Mary. But upon learning that Usopp's goal was to still sail and adventure and even eventually get back to the East Blue, he couldn't just stand by and let him go as that would surely result in his certain death. Although I wish he went about it in a little less callous way. I mean, he just straight up rips the siding of the Mary off and not gonna lie, that pissed me off too. There's a wrong and a right way to say goodbye to the Mary and this was definitely not it. It deserves way more respect and care than that. However, Frankie, with some more tough love, slams dunks Usopp in the water to really show him what's going on with the Mary. And he and we as the audience for the first time really see just how badly the Mary is hurt. And it, and it really hurts to see. Like I seriously started to tear up because this all but confirms the Mary is doomed. As you see the keel just in shambles, but it also hurts Usopp to see this as well. We do eventually see that Usopp really does actually understand the true state of the Mary and that it's pretty much hopeless. This scene is just so sad and Kape Yamaguchi's voice acting here is amazing as you really hear the pain in his voice. I mean, this guy always gives it 110% no matter what role he's in, but he's always so good at playing Usopp. Then... In a really interesting and insane string of dialogue, Usopp goes on to talk about a very innocuous scene that most of us forgot about in the middle of Skypea. In episode 167, more than two years ago in real time, mind you, that scene where Usopp goes to take a piss in the middle of the night and hears and sees a weird thing or person hammering away at the going merry 
only to find it fully repaired the next morning and back to its original state and not the flying model. At the time, there was no explanation given for this. And I'll be honest, I forgot about this scene when I first read through all of Water 7. And we now finally get an explanation to this phenomenon. And it's even more heartbreaking and touching than we could have ever imagined. Usopp then goes on to expand on that scene that whatever that was, it actually spoke to Usopp that night and said, it's all right, I'll carry you just a little longer. And I just about lost it here. I was bawling as it pretty much becomes obvious and apparent that the thing was the spirit of the going Mary personified somehow, trying to fix itself and working hard so that it can get the Straw Hats safely to one more island. And I mean, just the sheer storytelling here that Oda patiently waited that long to sort of have that pay off. I mean, that scene literally at the time seemed so random and and you just kind of like thought, huh, that's weird. And then kind of promptly forgot about it, or at least I did. I mean, it, it definitely like stuck with me with how weird it was. But by this point, I mean, it was more than a couple years and I literally forgot about that scene. And then Oda just hits you over the head with that scene and the explanation behind it. And the payoff is just so good. It's so satisfying, yet also so heartbreaking. And I do love that Frankie goes on to explain more lore and world building surrounding the culture of ships in the world of One Piece, as he confirms that, in fact, was something called the Clabouter Man, a legend that sailors tell each other about how a ship that's loved and cared for by its crew will appear to help and save its crew in times of danger. And according to Frankie, the Mary must have been really happy to be with the Straw Hats to the point where it actually manifested itself to be seen. It's just so beautiful. And Oda just, again, he takes such relatively unimportant scenes from like a long time ago and turn them into the most emotional and impactful moments in the series. Like, it's just crazy how good he is at that. However, even after hearing all this, Usopp still refuses to let the Mary go. Frankie then further talks about how if the Mary sinks with its beloved crew on board, that it won't even be able to rest in peace anymore because of how it went out. But however, before we get any type of resolution with the Mary and what Usopp is going to do going forward, Luchi and the CP9 come barging in as they found out where Frankie's workshop is through Zambai and the other Frankie family. And that is where this episode ends! And so, yeah, we won't get to really talk more about this until the next podcast. But before we end this there is a new ending theme. So starting in episode 246, we get a new ending theme titled Dear Friends, performed by Triplane, and it serves as the 16th ending theme. The animation and the song itself is obviously dedicated to the Going Merry, as everything centers around the Merry, and it's really sad. Like, the lyrics are clearly about the Merry and how they all dreamed of traveling the rough seas together, along with all the great times, but now that the Merry has to move on, the Straw Hats promised to complete the journey, or the puzzle, as it's stated in the lyrics, in her stead, and they'll let her know when it's completed. And if you listen to the full version, this pretty much all but confirms that this is the end for the Going Merry. And the animation is bittersweet, as we get to see a bunch of silhouetted memories of some of the most fun and iconic moments on the Merry. Then we see the interior of the cabin, with the Straw Hats slowly fading away. And all of this is really sad to see. Overall, I really like this song a lot. As sad as it is, 
you know, it's funny. When I first heard this, I wasn't a huge fan just because I never really liked, you know, the sad and mellow songs. But there was a particular turning point where my mind changed. But I won't spoil that for you. But I will mention it in the spoiler section. Now that the overall story of the entire arc is really starting to come together and all the pieces are starting to line up, I am so pumped and on the edge of my seat. At this point, you know, in the story with the story at its kind of like its lowest point, the basically the towards the middle of act two of this arc with everything going the villain's way, we'll have to wait a little longer to see how things continue as the next podcast we get to dive into the past of a certain character. I'm not sure why I said of a certain character like that, but (laughs) I don't really feel like re-recording that. Anyways, if you did enjoy this, send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes or see some pictures of my manga collection. You can check those out. As always, I wanted to thank you for taking the time out to listen to my podcast. And yeah, I'll have a, um, a spoiler section this episode. But if you're not interested in those, stay safe out there and I hope to see you on the next episode. Bye. Alrighty, so spoiler sections. Uh, The first thing I wanted to kind of mention is I can't help but notice, you know, how Tekkai and Kamie seem very similar to like precursors for the um, Haki. So obviously Tekkai is very similar to Busosho Haki or Armament Haki. And Kamie is very similar to Kenbun Shoku Haki or um, uh, Observation Haki. Because Tekkai is essentially like Armament Haki where they get to harden their body and make it impenetrable to um, certain attacks. And Kamie is obviously being able to anticipate your opponent's moves and dodge them very easily. Almost kind of like Ultra Instinct in Dragon Ball Super. But yeah, you know, it's it's obviously not quite hockey yet, but it seems like it's a very like preliminary, almost like uh, primitive version of those two, you know, forms of hockey. And it's just interesting to see if, if something, if that was intentional or if that's something that Oda sort of saw how, you know, useful Tekkai and Kamiya are, that maybe he would like to make it more ubiquitous for other characters not just people who train in the rokushiki attacks or techniques the other thing i wanted to mention obviously that i mentioned quite a bit is the zoro falling in the water now again i'm going to reiterate that this is incredibly inconsequential and just nitpicking at this point but it's so weird to me how in the anime they show him falling in the water and then in two more episodes down the road you see him getting washed up onto the roof, and I, I might go... Well, actually, no. I'll just talk about it all here. So in in uh, two more episodes, I believe it's in episode 249, Zoro gets washed up onto a roof, and he starts jumping back towards um, Gali- the Galila company to try and get back and regroup with everyone. But you'll notice like later on, Zoro is stuck in a chimney, and that's why they can't find him for the longest time. So... You know, he obviously, on his way back to the Galila company, he somehow slips and falls into a chimney. What 
in the manga, you don't really see any of that. Literally, the last time you see Zoro is as he's being launched out of the building, and then you see those water waves. And it's implied that he falls in the water, but you never actually see it. So what actually ends up happening is in the manga, the next time you actually see Zoro, is his feet are sticking out of the chimney. And so he's stuck in there. And so it's implied that the while Oda wanted to make you think that Zoro fell in the water and is like in trouble and maybe possibly drowning, he in fact actually landed in a chimney. And so... I don't know why they bother to change all of that. Like I said, it really doesn't make any difference because he ends up in the chimney again. But it's just so weird like, why they decided to change that. I mean, even if it's like to pad out time, it literally adds like 10 seconds. <laughs> I, I, it's just so weird. But anyways, <laughs> I always found that very strange. And the last thing I wanted to mention is um, the Dear Friends use in the Mary's funeral. So this is the point where I really kind of changed my opinion of this song because during its original run, because it only lasts about like 12, 15 episodes, I think, I, you know, I thought it was an all right song and and I didn't really like like it too much because of how sad and mellow it is. But upon its use it, during the Mary funeral, I don't know, there's just... I finally understood what the song was really about. And it also associated that song with the Mary. And it just really, it really stuck with me. And my opinion like completely did a 180. And I love this ending theme now. And it's definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, it's very strange how once it got associated with that particular scene, with all of them saying goodbye to the Mary and giving it that Viking funeral, I think, and as you hear that song come on and the the snow starts falling and then then you see the Mary, you know, lit up on fire and it's just, it's a beautiful scene. And yeah, the fact that that song is associated with that scene also really contributed to the fact that I I really liked it. I mean, you know, a song should really stand on its own, but at the same time, like, I, for some reason, really, it really started to resonate with me when it got associated with that memory. And so, yeah, I, it makes me incredibly sad, but at the same time, it's an, it's a great song. Anyways, that's pretty much everything I wanted to talk about here in this spoiler section. But as always, I wanted to thank you for listening and I'll see you on the next episode. See ya.